We're starting this new sermon series today. We're calling it Rooted, uh, Finding the Meaning of Life. And so, um, spoiler alert, right out of the gates on this series. So, um, we are a Bible-honoring and uh, Jesus-believing, gospel-centered church. And so, we believe that the meaning of life is found in Jesus. Like, I don't want you, like, waiting on, what's the meaning of life? I don't know what they're going to say. But Jesus, right? Now, now that we've settled that, that we've got to get some, where we headed with this whole thing, right? Where we're headed with this is we've got to ask the question then, coming off of that, well then, if Jesus is the meaning of life, and we're going to talk about that today, then what does that mean for things like my marriage, singleness, parenting, work, finances, like all the, all the areas of my life that I spend so much time thinking about and planning for, that I'm anxious about, fearful about, unsure about, uh, where does Jesus intersect with those areas? If he's the meaning of life, and these are so much of the things I spend my time a part of and doing with relationships and energy and all the rest, well, then how does him being the meaning of life infiltrate those places so that I can find meaning in all of those places, right? And, and really what's going on uh, and be driven forward with purpose and with life there. And so, and so that's what's happening in this series. We, we thought um, because there's some urgency around the front of the year, right? New year, new you, fresh start, all these sorts of things that you hear all the time. It'd be an appropriate moment just to kind of go back to the drawing board, hit ground zero again and go, hey, what, what is the meaning of all this? Where are we headed in all of this? We want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about his kingdom. We want to talk about where those things intersect with our everyday life, nine to five, on the ground, and, and even beyond nine to five when, when you're done with that, right? Um, so, so, so all of life. And so uh, a starting place for us as we set out into the next few Sundays talking about these things is just today uh, to kind of set the playing field. What does it mean to be rooted in Jesus? That's the question I want us to get at today. What does it mean? So that's a churchy phrase. Maybe you've been around church before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. But what does it mean to be anchored in Jesus, rooted in Jesus, set down in Jesus? What does that mean? Not just a, an ethereal idea, not just a concept out there to kind of hang on to for sentiment, but, but functional, real life, on the ground. What does it mean to be rooted in Jesus? That, that's what we're going to talk about today in Mark chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn there. We're looking at verses 34 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. I want to start by reading these verses, and I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. The voice of Jesus, our King, speaks to us like this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give? in return for his soul. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we want to come together and just confess in this moment, you are Lord. We want to confess that together. And so Jesus, we say now as your church, we want to come underneath you. We want to be ordered by you. We want to be addressed by you. We want to be um, uh, encountered by you. Jesus, we want you this, this moment, this, this hour. And so, God, I pray for the variety of ways we're coming in today. Holy Spirit, you know exactly what you intend to accomplish, and we just want to say yes to everything that you already 
intend to accomplish, and God, would you please accomplish it? Nothing, nothing thwarts your purposes. Nothing stands an obstacle to you. Nothing is too hard for you, God. And so, God, I pray you'd order us now, and uh, you'd gather us up in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our mess, and uh, show, us, show us the love of our King. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in our day, there's a lot of conversations happening around coffee shops, a lot of debates on TV, a lot of popular level web articles that are written on whether or not Christians are on the wrong side of history, right? So you think about the way that culture is progressing, traditional values, as they call them, are being uh, redefined and reordered and, and sort of put in different places and things as we've known them are not as we know them now. And it seems as though for some that Christians are sort of outdated, fuddy-duddies, Christianity has no place in this sort of new progressive world order, and maybe just Christians are on the wrong side of world history. And, and, and the conclusions oftentimes to these conversations, these articles, are that unless Christians figure out how to catch up and assimilate to everything the world is now endorsing, then they're just going to die. Then Christianity is just going to die altogether. It's just going to sort of go away. Um, the millennial generation and younger want to have nothing to do with church. Uh, the younger generations are leaving churches altogether. And uh, if we don't figure it out, then, then what are we going to do, right? This is a conversation that's really popular in our day. Now, my aim today is not to take on that debate. That's not what I'm here to do. Although I will say that when I think about this, I'm not alarmed. <laughs> I'm not alarmed at all about the security or the place of Christianity or the church in our day. Like, I'm not alarmed at all. I'm not saying that we don't have things to change. We have a lot of things to change. I'm not saying we don't have things to get better at. We have a lot of things to get better at. But what I am saying is Jesus is doing just fine. And he's promised us in Matthew 16 that not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. Uh, and so even though there might be some, some warfare we have to wage, we're gonna be just fine, right? And, and his kingdom will not be Shaken. And, and so moving on from there, I mentioned that though, because I, the tenor of these conversations is important to know the context that we're in as we talk about being rooted in Jesus. Like this is not the popular conversation of our day. Uh, over the last year, several of our church leaders have read a book called Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. If you're looking for a, a read this new year and thinking about where culture and Christianity are intersecting and how these things work together, I would highly, highly recommend this book, Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. In this book, he draws on the, soci the work of sociologist Philip Reif, who talks about um, the, the movement and the influence of Christianity in Western culture in terms of three cultures or three phases. He talks about a pre-Christian culture. Uh, so this is the influence over time of how Christianity influences a given group of people in a time and a place. You have a pre-Christian culture, you have Christendom, and you have post-Christian, right? And so pre-Christian culture is a moment where Jesus has not been named, the gospel has not gone forward, people have not confessed Christ, and so evangelism goes forward and the church begins to spread through new conversions to Christianity and following Jesus, right? And then from there, you move forward into what we for a long time have experienced in the West, especially in America, a, a moment called Christendom, where Christianity isn't necessarily the, um, the, the government-sanctioned religion, but 
you could say because its influence has gone so far that even if you're not Christian, Christian ideals have shaped morals and values largely in a given place or a country. And this would be called Christendom. So um, just because you accept Christian ideals doesn't mean you're Christian, which makes being Christian really confusing because everyone in that moment just says they're Christian. That's Christendom. But now where the third culture, the third sort of way, the third phase that um, he points out and talks about is a post-Christian culture, and he argues that this is the moment we're living in now, and, and I would tend to agree with that. Post-Christian culture is interesting. It's not a return back to pre-Christian, as though people have forgotten about Jesus and we need to re-evangelize. It's not a forgetting about Jesus and going back to pre-Christian. It's actually something altogether different. It's a determination to move beyond Christianity while at the same time plundering its fruits. At the same time plundering its fruits. Here's what I mean. In our post-Christian moment, think about the society we live. There's all kinds of desire in our broader world for things like grace. There's a real desire for this. If you're guilty, you don't want justice. <laughs> you want grace. You want grace. There's all kinds of desire for things like grace, redemption, turning your life around, seeing someone's life rehabilitated and restored. Everybody wants this redemption. Things like freedom and dignity for all people, justice and social activism for the marginalized and those who are affected by injustice, care for the vulnerable, a celebration of diversity, regardless of color and background and, and socioeconomic status, just diversity. We want a celebration of this, that we're all people united together, no one better than the other, right? A celebration of diversity, empowerment, empowerment of all kinds of people, especially the voiceless, right? And you think about all these kinds of things, all these things are things you hear about and are celebrated and glorified all over our culture. And make no mistake, every one of these things are blessings of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is for all of these things. These things inaugurate and start with him. Like, they're his idea. And yet, at the same time, we want these things in our culture. There's not rage about the things that come with the kingdom of Jesus. What there's rage about and what there's conflict about is the authority of Jesus. So here's how Mark Sayer says it in the book. The post-Christian culture is a unique kind of culture, one that promotes the elements of a universal Christian vision while deconstructing the Christian tradition and any convention that attempts to limit individual freedom and autonomy. The bottom line, post-Christian culture means we want the kingdom, we just don't want the king. We want everything Jesus would bring to us, but Jesus is negotiable. In fact, not preferable. He gets in the way. Tell me this doesn't sound like the culture we live in, right? Like this sounds exactly like what we experience, but here's the twist. I'm not just talking about the world out there. The crazy and even the scary thing about a post-Christian influence is that it shows up in those who would call themselves Christians every bit as much as it would show up in anybody else. The only question about a post-Christian influence is where does it show up in you? That's the only question we really need to debate today. Where does it show up in you? You can go, yeah, those people out there, I'm one of those people. 
right? I'm one of those people. So here's a couple of questions. Where in your life do you find yourself content just to get what you want, regardless of whether or not it means you would know more of Jesus on the back end? Where in your life are you content just to acquire whatever it is that you're in want of, regardless of whether or not on the back end you would know more of Jesus for having done so? Another one, where in your life are you content with kingdom blessings, the favor of, of, of life, health, and wellness, and prosperity, and whatever else you wanted to put on it? Where are you content with kingdom blessings with no regard on the back end with whether or not you would have more of the king himself? Where do you just want his stuff and not him? I see over and over again throughout your life and mine, we're going to have to face ourselves with this question. This is a pressing question that every one of us have to face ourselves with. Even if you don't want to, you're going to have to confront it. And it's this, to what extent is Jesus Lord? To what extent? Now that's not saying like we're going to now all of a sudden define Jesus. He's absolutely Lord, right? That's fixed. The question is on our end. To what extent is he functionally Lord for you? That's a question we have to grapple with. To what extent does he functionally have a say in your life? See, the popular thing in Oklahoma, sort of cultural Christianity, is that I could say, Jesus is Lord. And I would get, if we were an amen church, I'd get a lot of amens, right? That'd be a moment to give me an amen. Yeah. But just because you say amen to Jesus as Lord, doesn't mean he functionally has say in your life, right? To what extent is Jesus Lord? And this is exactly what Jesus is driving at in the text we read in Mark chapter eight. And so there's a few different angles I wanna process this from. As we look to Mark eight, I wanna process this from the angle of number one, what is Jesus saying? But then secondly, how is he saying it? Because as we read this, you're going to notice he says this in a particular way. It's not just that he gives us the what, it's how he's saying it that packs all the more punch. And then lastly, what does this mean for us? So what does he say? How is he saying it? What does it mean for us? Look back in 34 at what is he saying? He says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels, then he will save it. For what does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Okay, so these are some really strong words of Jesus, especially in the beginning. If anyone would come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Strong words, right? Like this is, this is not an easy believism. This is not Jesus giving you some sort of best life now, bait and switch, religious sales pitch. Like this is an eyes wide open, raw, gritty, real life call to discipleship. Like with Jesus, here's one of the beautiful things. There's no skeletons in his closet. There's no fine print with him. He, he's going to show you what you're going to get from the very beginning so that you know what it's going to cost or what it's going to mean, right? So he says, if you want to follow me, here's what it looks like. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and follow me. And, and so here's one of the fascinating things about Jesus. 
throughout his ministry, when the crowds would grow larger, like when people would start to come around because of his miracles, his teachings, and the crowd's getting hype and people have to do stuff about it because there's too many people around. Here's what he would do every time. The exactly opposite of what we do in our moment today. He would turn around in those moments and he would deliver some sort of hard saying. He would draw a line in the sand and his consistently, his disciples would look at him and go, what are you doing? People are gonna leave because you said that. And he goes, it's okay. It's okay. Like Jesus never mixed words. He knows exactly what he's doing. He never has to kind of go, oh, I need to edit that one. His account never gets hacked. Like he means it. And so Jesus has never been interested in fans. Jesus is not interested in just gathering a following for the sake of having a following. He's not interested in admirers. He's not interested in miracle chasers. He's not interested in any of those things. But here's what Jesus always invites. Anybody, literally anybody, regardless of background, regardless of past darkness, regardless of anything you're caught up in, even this moment, I'm not for miracle chasers or admirers, but literally anybody who would want to follow me, let's go. Anybody. No asterisk, no profiling, no stereotype, no discrimination. Anybody from any background, any darkness, let's go. Who would follow me, really follow. And so when Jesus speaks this, this is an issue of authority which is a very unpopular conversation in our day, right? Like no one wants to talk about authority issues. And why? Because in our day, we've been jaded by authorities. So people in authority have abused their authority. They've manipulated it. They've, they've been caught lying in, in, in all kinds of deception in their authority. And so what we want to do on the back end is be skeptical, stiff arm, and say, no one is going to have an authority over me. I'm going to call balls and strikes for myself I'm gonna play life according to my own rules because even if it goes bad, well, at least in that moment, I only have myself to blame. We hate authority as a defense mechanism for all the authorities have done us wrong, right? But regardless of whether or not you feel good or bad about authority, at the end of the day, every one of us have to deal with the authority question. Who's your authority? Where are you getting authority from? Where is your foundation, your starting place? You have to deal with the question of authority, and here's why. Because where you draw authority from has everything to do with where you're being formed and how you find your identity, your sense of self, your sense of worth, your sense of value, your sense of significance in the world. So if it's your parents, if it's your boss, if it's a group of people you want approval from, whoever it is that you want is your authority, You're going, well, those are the people who are telling you who you are and why you're valuable and what you, right? And so you have to answer the question, who's your authority? This will be the basis by which you make decisions, by which you move forward in life, and by which you you chart a direction. And so so at the end of the day, you, you say then, okay, what does it mean to be rooted in Jesus? That's the question we're after today. Being rooted in Jesus, here's what it means. It means following him as Lord. To be anchored down and rooted in Jesus. Everything that he's done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, establishes him as the one who rules and reigns for those who would say yes to him. To be rooted in him, to find meaning in him, 
in him says, whatever you say, go. You're my Lord. You are my Lord. Okay, so this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. But now I want you to notice, how is he saying it? Because the way he says these things in verses 34 through 37 are, are fascinating. So, so look again at 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So here's the what. This is the bottom line. This is baseline. This is the imperative. This is the command. This is absolute. If anyone would want to take up Jesus, or if you're questioning today, what is Christianity 101? It is looking to Jesus, laying down in front of him and saying yes to him. I deny myself. I affirm him. I take up my cross. I follow him. This is what it means to be a Christian, right? This is what it means. And it's as if Jesus can see the collective eyebrow raise and the collective gasp in our voices throughout the history of his church when his people read this line. Because this is a hard statement. Like, I don't know, there's a lot of people in the house today, right? I don't know that you're coming to church thinking, you know what I want to do today? I want to deny myself. No one's thinking that. You know what I want to do? I want to take up an ancient, I want to take up an ancient device of execution. I want to take up my cross. And I want to follow Jesus. Like, no one was thinking that today. Like, this is a hard saying he makes. This is what he's saying. And it's as if he, can, he knows in our minds, wow, that's stiff, Jesus. So here's what he does next. In verses 35 through 37, he walks us through three statements of logical reasoning for us to see that when he says this, it's not only not outrageous for him to say this, it's actually the most helpful healing and clarifying thing he could say to us because at least now we know what we're getting into when we say yes to him. So here's, here's what he does. In verses 35, 36, and 37, if you have a Bible, you can see this. In these three verses that follow this statement, they all begin with the word for, which could also be translated because of or therefore. So, so think of what comes after. If you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself. What comes after that are these if this, then this kind of statements. So Jesus is saying, if this, well, then this, and if that, then that, and then so on. And so one of the ways to understand a logical sequence of next steps like this is to read it in reverse. It's to read it in reverse and retrace the argument back up to its starting point. And so if you're like, what are you even talking about? Just run with me on this, run with me on this. So skip down to verse 37. Look at what Jesus says. For what can man give in return for his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? So this is a two-sided rhetorical question, right? This is a rhetorical question. On the one hand, what could you possibly repay God for the life he's given to you? What could you possibly repay God? Is there anything you could offer back to God that he doesn't already have for what he's given to you? No? Okay. On the other hand, is there any payment you could offer God to cover the sins you've committed against the character of his holiness? Is there any payment you could offer back to him? No. And maybe there's a third layer to this question, real practically. Is there any price tag out there worth cashing in your soul for? Like, can you put a price on your integrity? Like, can you put a number, a number amount next to your sense of self? 
Is there any career relationship that could possibly give you that could possibly give you that would be worth compromising yourself for? Is there anything? The sobering answer to this question, what can a man give in return for his soul is nothing. I can't do that. Okay, so then look back, look up to the next verse, work backward. The logical sequence builds. For then what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? So if you can't give God anything in return for your soul, you got to come up with something, but you can't gain the whole world to do that because we know this, another rhetorical question, nothing in this world can ultimately save you. Nothing this world can offer you, right? Nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy you or save you from your fears. Nothing can ensure you good health. Nothing can uh, spare you from death. Nothing can ultimately complete you. No career can do that. No spouse can do that. No house can do that. No education can do that. No amount of money can do that. All of those are good things, but they can't ultimately spare you or save you. They can't. They're they're good things to be enjoyed, but, but they're not the bottom. So then what good is it to forfeit your soul? What good is it to lose yourself, to compromise yourself, to run yourself ragged, to gain the next thing this world has to offer that's at your latest whim of discontent if it can't save you ultimately from your anxieties, fears, guilt, and shame? Listen, here's what I know to be true, and you do too. A war chest of the world's riches does you no good in the presence of God. does you no good in the presence of God. And so you go, well, I can't give anything in return for my soul, so I better, I better build around me some safety and protection. Well, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? And then the next line of argument goes, travel back up to verse 35. So you can see where this is going. And so now you're going, feeling, what am I supposed to do then? This is what you're supposed to be feeling. Verse 35 tells us, well, whoever would want to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, then he will save it. So if there's nothing that you or I can do to save ourselves and nothing we can do to find ultimate satisfaction in ourselves and our own, what our hands can make for us, then it only stands to the logic that he's pointing out here that if you want to save yourself, save your life, you've got to lose it. The only way to save your life is to hand it over to one who actually can. You see it? You can't give anything in return for your soul. So we would do no, you, do you no good to gain all the world's goods because you still have nothing to give for your soul. So then what do you do for your sense of self and to have safety and, and to be saved, especially in the presence of God? I can't do it. Well, what? I, I let go of it and I give it over to someone who can actually do something about it. You stop trying to manage your life. You stop trying to crop your life. You stop trying to filter your life. You stop trying to reimagine your life. You stop trying to try harder at your life. To save your life, you have to recognize it doesn't belong to you. You didn't put breath in your lungs. You didn't have the idea to create yourself. You didn't give yourself the gifts you have, the gift of art the gift of music. You didn't give yourself the enjoyments you have. You don't belong to yourself. No matter what you think, you're not your own boss. And so this is not just some, you need to 
be really clear here. This is not just some abstract, ethereal, hyper-mystical Jesus saying, lose your life mantra like Nirvana or something, right? Like that's not what's going on here. If the back half of the verse is here for us, he says it's losing your life in a certain kind of way that matters. Look at what he says. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, then you will save it. If you, if you lose your life in Jesus, if you hand yourself over to him and the gospel, remember the gospel, right? It's the celebration of Christmas. We can't get to God. God comes to us. We, we sang the song. Uh, when he appeared, the soul started to feel its worth, right? When, when he appeared, the soul felt its worth. And so if you lose your life in him, then you will save it. Then you will find it. And so all the things that we chase all the time to find completion, all the things that we chase all the time to give ourselves a sense of significance, they're only shadows of the substance found in Jesus. So here's what I mean. If you're single and you just, you're just like, man, I am discontent and restless till I find the one and then I'll be completed. And you elbow the married person next to you and go, you're completed, right? And the married person goes, oh, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> and then there's the engaged couples in the room. They're going, not us, baby. We're going to make it. <laughs> the laughter is the answer, right? The laughter is the answer. Listen, no other person can complete you. But God did give you the person, his son, the son of man, the son of God. The things you look to to give you a sense of worth, like a career, right? Like this job makes me matter. This job validates me. This job gets my, my daddy issues off my back. Look, I made it. I did it, right? I made something of myself. I'm a thing. Except those moments at your job where you feel underappreciated, overworked, you didn't get the raise, you didn't get the promotion, someone else was by, right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, then my worth was taken from me. Listen, worth can only be given to you through the broken body and shed blood of the Son of God who saw you worth it to demolish every obstacle that would keep you from the Father. That's worth. Approval. You chase approval like crazy. Like I want people to, to tell me that I matter and they like me and all, all the rest of the stuff. That comes and that goes. You have likes and dislikes on posts. But because of what the beloved Son has done for you, in your place, on your behalf, at his cross and in his resurrection, the father now says over you the same word he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son, daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Approval can, all these other places we try to find stuff are just shadows of what really is being found in Jesus. It's in him. C.S. Lewis says it this way in mere Christianity. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way, and let him take us over, the more we truly, um, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. Look for yourself, and in the long run, you will only find hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. It's never enough. But look for Christ and you will find him, and along with him, everything else thrown in. 
So long as you're after kingdom blessings with no regard for the king, you might find remnants down here. But if you look for the king, you will find the king. Lift up your eyes and behold the love of your king and along with him, everything else thrown in, even yourself. And so then now with that line of argument, what can you give in return for your soul? Nothing. Well, then what good would it be if you gained all the world's goods? Not that they're bad, but they just can't save you. And then you forfeit your soul. Well, then how do I save myself? You got to lose yourself. Well, then how do I do that? Back to verse 34. You read it backward and it comes to light. 34 then says, well, how do I lose myself to save it? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Okay, that's pretty broad. What does that mean? He explains it. Take up your cross and follow me. Okay, so in the first century, taking up your cross, like they would have known exactly what this meant. Crosses in the first century Roman Empire were reserved for two kinds of people. The worst of criminals, but in the case of Jesus, they were also reserved for those who committed high treason against Caesar, Roman Empire. They would make an example to say, if you don't submit to the authority of Caesar, you too will end up like this. You too will end up like this. And so to take up your cross is to say, I want to cash in what this world has told me I'm supposed to be, what Caesar has told me I'm supposed to be, what my parents have told me what I'm supposed to be, what what I feel like I'm supposed to be. I want to cash that in for a new identity of what God declares that I already am in him. And so I cash that in. I take up my cross. I deny myself. I don't call balls and strikes. I don't build up myself. I don't establish myself. I don't tell myself who I am. Others don't tell me who I am. What others do to me can't define me. Jesus defines me. I take up my cross and I let his finished work on the cross now define everything about me. It defines my worth. It defines my approval. It defines my gifts. It defines my purpose. It defines everything. And it also defines my authority. Again, he gets to call balls and strikes for any who would follow him. So what does this mean? Well, it means you've got to move out the old furniture, the old way of calling shots, and move in the new furniture. Jesus is the one who sets the living room now. Jesus is the one who says, who says what goes. He says what's in bounds, right? Colossians 3 says it this way. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. It's hidden in Christ. For to be a Christian is to say, I don't want my life. This is what Christianity, I don't want my life. I want the life pleasing to God. That's in Jesus. So now for those who say yes to Jesus, your life is hidden in his. He calls the shots. Okay, so we wrap up real, real, real practical. So what does this mean for us? So I know that like some of you are in the room and you're like, man, I'm coming in today and this doesn't help any of my problems, you know? Some of you are like, you said this is gonna be about finding the meaning of life and this doesn't help my singleness, this doesn't help my marriage, this doesn't help my finances, this doesn't help work situation, this doesn't help any of that stuff. Very often what you and I want is a quick fix, right? Oh, I'll give God a shot, see if he can do it. I want a quick fix. At the end of the day, when my wife and I have marriage conflict, the ultimate problem isn't the conflict so much as that I typically have a Lord problem. 
I'm acting in a moment toward her, not like Jesus is Lord of me or her, but that I'm Lord and I want my way. So now the conflict is at place. Most marriage conflicts, most finance conflicts, most singleness restlessness, most parenting conflicts have to do with a Lord problem. That's, that someone else has taken the throne for the moment and someone else is calling the shots, not Jesus. When that gets reordered, now the, now the marriage conflict can be reassessed. Now the finances can be reassessed. Now parenting can be broader and, and more sober. Now you, you see where it goes. So very often what ends up happening is we want to cherry pick from Jesus and just take what we think will be a quick Band-Aid. Jesus isn't a Band-Aid. He's Lord. Jesus isn't a Band-Aid. He's, he's absolutely Lord. When we treat him like a Band-Aid, we reduce him to no better than a self-help book. He's Lord. He's a living and active risen king. He has a voice. He still speaks all through his scriptures in the presence of the, of the people of God in the church. He's speaking, he's directing, he's moving, he's shaping, he's forming this very day. Jesus is doing just fine. To what extent is Christ Lord? Right? It's a question we all have to get to. And for some of you, the reason that Christianity consistently doesn't make sense and the reason that Christianity is consistently frustrating is you've reduced Jesus to a Band-Aid. Now, one last thing I want to say is you think about your New Year's resolutions, your New Year's goals, your New Year's ambitions. When it comes to this whole conversation of Jesus being Lord and being rooted in him, let's just say 2019 becomes that year that like, if you, even if you're not a journaler, you start journaling because it goes amazing, right? Like this year has to be chronicled, you know? Business aspirations take off. Marriage goals are amazing. You lose all the weight. You have like, you're on the next cover of a magazine or something. And it's like the best year ever. You meet all your goals, but at the end of the year, you have no more love and affection for Jesus. No more fellowship with the Holy Spirit than you had in 2018. You have no more ambition for the mission of God and to see revival happen in your city. Your heart's grown cold toward God, but it feels like everything else in your life is amazing. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with that? Would it still be the greatest year ever? See, the question we have to ask is, to what extent is Christ Lord? To what extent? To what extent is he king? To what extent is he your greatest prize? Because he's the one all this stuff is pointed toward. That's why he's the meaning. All this stuff is gonna be summed up in him and all of us one day will stand face to face with him. And if that's where we're headed, simple wisdom would say, let's get the party started now, huh? 